Matthew chapter 23 is where we'll be at tonight. And we'll read, we'll read the whole chapter, um, and then we'll begin making our way through it. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, but no further than verse 15. So uh, we'll start there in verse 1, and let's go ahead and read the chapter. And this chapter is Jesus' denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. Okay, so the whole chapter is devoted to that, with the end of it being uh, him uh, lamenting over Jerusalem and what is taking place there. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll have our Bible study. Matthew 23, verse 1 says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on your earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men! Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adore the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? 
Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, have the very mind of Christ as we think about, uh, Lord, the dangers of false teachers, Lord, the dangers of being like the scribes and Pharisees. Lord, may we not emulate uh, them and their ministry and the way that they behaved among the people, Lord, using uh, their position as a way of exalting themselves, Lord, lacking in love and mercy uh, toward the people, Lord, in justice, uh, but instead, Lord, dealing in these scrupulous ways with the law and heaping up heavy burdens upon people. Lord, may we not be like them, but rather, Lord, we pray that we would be feel, filled with true righteousness, Lord, and love and mercy, and that, Lord, we would uh, take the attitude of servants among your people uh, so that we might, uh, Lord, be exalted by you on the day of Christ. So, Lord, help us as we think through this. And, Lord, we pray that you give us the very mind of Christ. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, Matthew chapter 23 is a very long denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. Right? These are the ones who were the religious leaders there in the nation of Israel, uh, serving as those uh, over the religious aspects of the life of Israel, and even having... Uh, a lot of input in terms of the day-to-day -day and the civil affairs there among the people as well. Though by this time, Israel was under the rule of the Romans, yet the scribes and Pharisees, in terms of religious matters, uh, the Romans would leave them be and let them handle those things insofar as it did not upset or cause any, uh, uh, anything to disrupt the tax flow, right? That's the main thing the Romans were concerned about was that there was peace there in the empire, and that the tax flow was running from the regions there into Rome. And then as far as that was concerned, what was happening in the day-to-day -day life of the people, they didn't really uh, concern themselves too much, and especially in the religious life of the people. So whatever your religion was before, they allowed you to continue in those things so far as it did not upset or cause problems there. And so the scribes and Pharisees had a very prominent position there in the life of Israel as the religious leaders during that time. Now, this denunciation, when we read it, it may seem very extreme, right? It, it may seem very harsh in the way that Jesus is dealing with these people. But we have to remember that this is after three years, three years of Him patiently, graciously instructing them in the gospel and the things of God. And from the very beginning of His ministry, very early on, even though they saw so many of the signs and wonders of God, it was evident and manifested by God to them that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the Messiah, and that they should listen and follow Him. And yet they continually 
opposed him from the very beginning of his ministry, even though many of them recognized that, there, yes, there is some legitimacy in this man. That's as we see in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to him and he says, we know that he is a teacher from God because no one can do the things he does unless God is with him. Right? They recognize that the work of God, the presence of God was with him, and yet they were stumbling over his person and his work. His person being that he was mean, he was lowly, uh, he came from uh, a poor e area, he came from the area of Galilee, his parents were of no account, he wasn't wealthy, he wasn't trained in their schools and those types of things. So he came from this lowly, humble background, but then also his work, namely his crucifixion, that they stumbled over the cross of Christ and they did not want those types of things and therefore they constantly opposed him throughout the course of his ministry, even crediting his mighty miracles and his works to the power of Satan. This is how deranged these people were. And up to this point, Jesus has... Now, he's, he's had his skirmishes with them. He's rebuked them. He's had his arguments and debates and conflicts with them. But he, he has not brought such a denunciation against them up to this point. But this is after three years of constant harassment and also death threats. Right? They are attempting to murder him, to kill him. And so now at the end, just before his death, he is going to pronounce this judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees because of the things that they have done. Now, I say that because, again, Jesus was very patient with them for a long time. He did not quickly make this kind of denunciation against them. However, it is a just and right denunciation. Everything he says is good and right. And they are opponents to the gospel, right? And to God, to true worship of God, this is what they are doing. They are seeking to undermine those things. So Jesus is going to talk about all of the sins related to the scribes and Pharisees. Okay? So he begins in verses 1 through 12 with a warning, a warning to his disciples and the people. And then 13 through the rest of the chapter are the woes or the pronouncements of judgments upon the scribes and Pharisees as he lists and articulates the sins that were prominent among them, okay? So that's the way the chapter breaks down. And then the end of it is a lament of Christ over Jerusalem uh, because of what is about to come upon the city, namely their own destruction in A.D. 70, okay? And then that'll lead into chapter 24, which is teaching on the destruction of Jerusalem and then the end times as well, okay? So let's pick up in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. Here, He's talking to the crowds and to His disciples, and it's necessary for Him to teach on this issue because... When false teachers arise among the people, they can have a very adverse effect upon the children of God, right? Upon those who are disciples, who are the crowds, who are those who have gathered around Christ, right? And the problem is going to be that uh, they cause a scandal in the name of the true religion, right? They're not worshiping idols. They're not worshiping uh, Zeus or other pagan deities. 
They claim to worship the true God, and they're using the scriptures of the Old Testament in order to make their boast and their claims of what they say is true of God. So they are a false form of, like we would say, a false form of Christianity, like Roman Catholicism. And the danger is, is that when people see the corruption that arises within a false form of Christianity, that they associate those corruptions with Christ, with the Bible, with the things of God, and then they have a sour view of God because of the false teachers. The false teachers, this is part of the tactic of Satan in dealing with them, in using them. They cause a scandal in the name of God, and then it causes people to have an unfavorable view of the truth, right? Of the truth and of the true religion. And so he's warning them of this because you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? The bathwater, which is soiled and is uh, no good and dirty, yes, it needs to be thrown out, but the baby that is there in the bath you don't want to throw the baby out because it's your baby, right? And you love your baby, and that is the value. You have to reject what is bad and then keep what is good. And that's what he's dealing with here. So what is it then about the scribes and Pharisees that must be retained, and what is it that must be rejected? There has to be a distinction that is made, and that's what Jesus does. He says in verse 2, "...they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses." The scribes and Pharisees... They are the ones who are the teachers, the primary teachers of the people during this time. And the text that they use as their primary text is the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Old Testament Scriptures are all built upon the foundation laid by the prophet Moses. That's why it's called the chair of Moses. Not that they didn't believe in the other prophets. Of course they believed in the other prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophet David and all of the prophets. But when you're dealing with the Old Testament, the foundation is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch that was laid by the prophet Moses. And then everything that comes after Moses is an interpretation of the first five books of the Bible. It's a reiteration of what was already introduced or taught by the prophet Moses during those times. That's why we remember in the book of Malachi, at the end of Malachi chapter 4, he tells them to pay close attention to the prophet Moses, right? To the law of Moses. He's emphasizing the law of Moses because in emphasizing the law of Moses, you're incorporating all the Old Testament as well because all the Old Testament is in one way or another an expounding of the themes and the ideas and the doctrines that were already introduced by the prophet Moses when he laid the foundation of the Jewish state, the Jewish nation and the religion that was there among them, all of which found its consummation in the person and work of Christ, okay? Well, they have seated themselves there on the chair of Moses. And in terms of their teaching, the scribes and Pharisees are an even, there are more dangerous teachers than even the Sadducees. The Sadducees denied, we know, the resurrection, they denied the spirit, they denied angels. But the Pharisees and scribes, they confess all of these things. They are a more traditional, more conservative approach to the Old Testament scriptures. Right, So there are many things that they taught that were true. And you can't reject what is true just because the one that's teaching it is a bad character. That's the danger. And that's why he's saying they sit on the seat of Moses or they sit in Moses' chair. Therefore, he says, 
You must do all that they tell you to do. Whatever they're teaching that conforms to the Word of God, then you need to listen to them and you need to obey it. You need to observe it. If the Pharisee is preaching against adultery, is that good or is that evil? Well, it's good. And you don't need to say, well, he's a Pharisee. He's a false teacher. He's a rascal. Therefore, whatever he says, I'm going to reject. Well, you can't do that because on this one topic, he's teaching what's good. If he's talking about the resurrection, we know that from Acts 23, 6, that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and they taught the day of resurrection. Should we reject the doctrine of the resurrection because a Pharisee taught it? No, of course not. And that's what Jesus is saying to them, right? The danger is that the association of the truth with the false teacher is that people will be tempted to reject the truth because the false teacher is the one that proclaimed it. And he says, no, you can't do this. So insofar as what they teach is in accordance to the Scriptures and is accordance to the faithful interpretation, the proper interpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures, then you need to listen to them and you need to do and observe all that they tell you to do. This is similar to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verses 15 to 18. Here, the Apostle Paul is speaking of a similar issue in terms of the preaching of the gospel. Philippians 1, 15. He says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ has proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So in both cases, they're preaching Christ. One is doing it sincerely from a heart of love. The other one is doing it in an insincere way, from envy and strife. But what is the Apostle Paul, what is his chief concern? that Christ is being proclaimed. Whether it be envy and strife, now of course, does he prefer that the teachers be doing it out of love? Of course he does. But insofar as they're preaching Christ, he's rejoicing because the message of Christ is going out. And God can even use a false teacher to promote the truth. To promote the truth. One of such instances we quoted on Sunday. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? What great prophet proclaimed that truth? The false prophet Balaam. The false prophet Balaam is the one who made that statement. Should we reject that statement because Balaam the false prophet is the one that made it? No, because it's true. It is a true statement and God made him speak by the Holy Spirit. So much for free will, right? right? God made the false prophet preach and proclaim the true prophecy, the true nature of God. So that is what Jesus means here. And this is the same as the apostle means in Philippians 1, 15 to 18. That's why Jesus says, do what they say in all things, insofar as what they say is consistent with scripture. You need to do what they say. He says, however, do not follow their example. Don't live the way that they live. Their life is not consistent with what they're preaching and with what they're teaching. Right? Their life, it is their morality that is making them into a false teacher. 
right? What they're saying is generally true. Though again, with the scribes and Pharisees, not everything that they're saying is true. So Jesus isn't saying that all of their doctrine is good and right. There are things that they're teaching that are wrong, namely teaching people to trust in their own righteousness, works-based salvation, and they're rejecting the true person of Christ. So they have their false areas of doctrine. However, in terms of many aspects, it is true. And in that way, do what they do, but do not live the way that they live. And also even in many of the areas where they're teaching what is true in terms of morality, they themselves aren't practicing it. Right? They're hypocrites. Right? They are religious hypocrites. So they're saying one thing and they're doing the other. So do what they say, but don't do what they do. Do not follow their example. Now, what we should desire more than anything else is that we would have good teachers. Good teachers whose doctrine and life are united together so that we can both listen to their words and also follow their example. That is what we should strive for. And this is what we should strive to see within the church and what we should desire to raise up for future generations as well. The good teacher has good words and he also has a good life, a good example. The bad teacher, he has some words and deeds that are no good. Then there are others who have some words that are good, but then their deeds are no good. The one whose words and deeds are bad, we should reject him altogether. The ones who, whose words are good, but whose deeds are bad, we should listen to his words, but we should reject the way that he lives. Now, a couple of examples of good teachers. First, Ezra chapter 7. This is the way it should be. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra is a good teacher because he studied the law of God first so that he himself could practice it and then so he could teach it. So whether it is his words verbally teaching or whether he is teaching by his practice, in Ezra you have both of those things united. And you can follow his life and you can follow his words because he is a good and a godly teacher. Also, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. There the Apostle Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. There, though of course his words are commended to them as being the very words of God, but also his practice. Imitate me, he says, as I imitate Christ. So to imitate him is to imitate the very life of Christ because he is living a godly life. Then one other example, 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. 1 Timothy 4, 16 says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Here, pay close attention to yourself. That would be your life, the way that you live, and also to your teaching. This would be your public ministry, your preaching or teaching ministry. Persevere in both of them, he says. And the result will be salvation for yourself and for your hearers. 
you're going to give them such a good example to follow and your words are going to be so beneficial to them that it will ensure their salvation, their perseverance, their continuation in the things of God. And also you will manifest and prove that you yourself are a true and faithful teacher of God and a sincere believer. Okay, back to chapter 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Here, they heap heavy burdens upon the men. This is different than the burden of Christ, right? We remember that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. In Christ's law, there is liberty, right? There is freedom. It is a light and easy burden because Christ changes our heart in such a way that we delight in walking in His path, in walking in His ways, because Christ is united to us. He is giving us His Spirit within us who causes us to desire to walk in those things. But they're not putting these kinds of burdens on the people. They're putting heavy burdens on the people, which are man-made traditions, laws of their own making that they're heaping upon the people. They have this scrupulous, rigid set of laws that they heap upon men. And then if you get out of line on one of their laws, then what are they going to do? They'll pounce on you, right? Like a rabid dog. They'll turn on you. And then they're always there uh, barking at you, always there condemning you, criticizing you, confronting you. Isn't that what the Pharisees were constantly doing to Jesus? Why do your disciples not, not wash their hands before they eat? Why are your disciples working on the Sabbath day, picking heads of grain? Oh, if he knew what kind of woman that this, this person was, uh, he wouldn't let her touch him. He's constantly there doing this type of stuff to Jesus, nitpicking him, going around, watching every move that he makes, and anything that doesn't meet up to their standard, to their traditions, then they're there to criticize, to condemn him. And this is what they're doing to the people constantly with the result that the people are living in constant fear that they're going to go to hell because they can't meet up to these standards and these burdens that are being heaped upon them by the scribes and Pharisees. It's no way to live. You've got someone breathing down your neck all the time, right? And it makes everyone miserable. And that's what they're doing to the people. Matthew chapter 7. Actually, not Matthew, Mark. It's like, that doesn't sound right. Mark chapter 7 corresponds to Matthew chapter 15. But Mark 7 gives a fuller description of some of the practices, the heavy burdens of the scribes and Pharisees. Mark 7 verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Right? They're just looking for something to criticize looking for something that they can, someone they can accuse of sin. And there are people like this. It's like they walk around and they have this innate desire to accuse people of sin, to find fault 
in every single person and then to make it into this massive issue, right? And that's the way that the scribes and Pharisees are. And here, again, these are man-made rigid laws that are governing many facets of the people's everyday life. And then they're there watching them constantly like owls to make sure the people are following them. And if they're not, then they confront them and there's some controversy and they pronounce judgment upon them with the result that the people are again living in constant fear and trepidation. This is the result of this. Fear of being confronted because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Fear of having some controversy because he walked too far on the Sabbath day. Right? When that's a great evil, that he would walk this distance on the Sabbath day. Right? Someone pulling out a tape measure, making sure that their skirt is long enough, right? that it goes all the way down to their toes. Right? Or making sure that you didn't do any work right, on this day or that day. This is the type of stuff that people do. And these are heavy burdens that are thrown onto people. And then the result is the people are living in this fear walking on eggshells all the time, not because they have fear of God, not because they're wanting to please God, but because they're afraid that the scribes and Pharisees are going to be lurking around the corner and they're going to pounce on them if they're not doing everything exactly the way that they want it. This is what happens, and it can still happen in the church today. Breathing down the necks of men. So, uh, this is what is the result. And he says... They will not, they're unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They won't help the people at all. They won't make any concession for them at all. They are so scrupulous in the way that they want these things kept and followed that they themselves will not lift a finger to lighten these burdens on the people, even though the people are sinking down into despair. Even though the people are desponding, they will not give them any assurances of God's love, of His grace, of His kindness, of His mercy, but they heap more fear upon them because you didn't wash your hands before you ate. This is the way that they are doing the people. And it's not good. So they're very demanding, exacting, severe, rigid with others. And then also, they're hypocrites. So oftentimes when no one else is looking, what do they do? They don't follow their own burdens. They heap the burdens on others, and in public they follow them, but then in private they themselves give themselves free reign to do whatever they want. And they're not following it in the same way. Okay, verse 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. Here is another uh, thing that they do. First, in verse 4, they have no love for their brothers. But who do they have a lot of love for? They have a lot of love for themselves. Yes, they love themselves greatly. right? Which is, again, yes, there is a self-love that is legitimate, such as whenever we uh, hurt ourselves, Right? If we break our arm, we should take care of our own body. Right? No one hates his own body, but he loves it, he nourishes it, he cherishes it. In this way, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. But there is an evil self-love where we prefer ourselves above all others. And we use others in order to promote ourselves. And we want to be above 
everyone else. And there is this type of love that comes from, from pride, where we want to be above all other men. And we have in our mind our own superiority and the inferiority of everyone else. And then we use men in order to promote our own glory and honor. And that's what they do. This is why they are meticulous in their practicing of these traditions that they create. Because they love to be noticed by men. Men think that the keeping of these meticulous laws make them very righteous. They say, Did you, do you see how faithful he is? He washes his hands every time before he eats. Right? Oh, he won't uh, walk more than 10 foot on the Sabbath day. Look at how righteous he is. They conclude that this kind of scrupulous living equals righteousness. And they do these things, these outward shows of righteousness, in order to be seen by men. So that men will praise them. They're not doing it to be seen by God. If they're doing it to be seen by God, then they can do it in secret. They can do it without anyone else noticing or taking notice. But they don't do these things in secret. They only do it when there's a crowd there so that men will come and praise them and give them some adulation. But we shouldn't live like that. That's contrary to true righteousness, to true godliness, where we are supposed to do our good deeds in secret, right? In secret in a way. Matthew chapter 6, or many of the aspects of the Christian life. And there, again, there is a component where our good deeds will be seen by others. And there is a legitimate place for that in the Christian life. But what is the motivation, right? That's the issue that Jesus is addressing here. Is the motivation for practicing righteousness so that I can be praised by men? Or is the motivation for practicing righteousness love of God? Because I want to please God. Well, if it is the true motive of pleasing God, then it doesn't matter if there are a hundred people here or if there are zero people here. If it is consistent with the will of God, I'm going to do it because I'm not doing it for men. I'm doing it for God. But if God chooses for men to be there and to see it and them to give glory to God because of what God has done in me, then so be it. But if no one is there and I'm all alone, then it doesn't matter because I'm not doing it for men. I'm doing it for God, right? That's the way that we should be. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they will have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then also verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
See, they're doing theirs to be seen by men. So they're going out of their way when they're fasting to make their face gloomy, disheveled, so that people will ask, oh, is everything all right? And then they can announce, well, I'm fasting. Oh, you're fasting. Wow, you're very godly. This is their secretive, sneaky way of getting people to bring it up so that they don't have to just announce, hey, everyone, I'm fasting. Praise me. But they do this way, this thing of having the gloomy face in order to elicit some question or response from the people so that then they can announce what they're doing. But what's really on their heart and mind the whole time is they want to announce who they are. They want to announce what they're doing. They want people to take notice of what they are doing. And we shouldn't live like that. They do their deeds. They practice whatever they're doing in order to be seen by men. That is the motivation. Now, again, like I mentioned earlier, there is a legitimate place for our good deeds to be seen by men. This would be Matthew 5, 14. Matthew 5, 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here, this is the fruit or the result of living the godly life, but not the motivation, right? The motivation is love for God, but the result is is that God will cause our light to so shine before men that they will see your good deeds and they will take notice that he's not the same man that he used to be. Something's happened to him. He's a changed man. And then they're going to glorify God who is in heaven. The result will be the glory of God. So the reason to live a godly life is love for God, not love for self. But they do it for love of self. To be noticed by men. Then also, they brought in their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. Here, these phylacteries are pieces of parchment that they would wear on their body, okay, on their body, uh, as a sign of their devotion to God, okay, and they typically wore four of these, right, four of these that they would have there on their body. From, and they would have these four verses on them. The four verses are Exodus 13.2, Exodus 13.11, Deuteronomy 6.4, and Deuteronomy 11.13. These are significant verses in the law of Moses, and they would have these on these phylacteries, and then they would wear these on their person, right? They would wear them there on their bodies, and they are broadening these phylacteries so that they'll be more noticeable so that people will say, oh, he has a very broad phylactery. He must be a very, very godly man. He's very serious. And they wear them religiously, right, in this very meticulous way as a show of their devotion to God. And this is from a very liberal, or not a liberal, a very literal interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 Deuteronomy 11:18 says, "You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead." Here, when it says that you shall bind them on your hand and be frontals on your forehead, 
What he means is that the Word of God needs to be in your mind. It needs to be in your heart and in your mind all the time. You need to be thinking about it, meditating on it, dwelling upon it at all times. And then he's using this imagery of having it on your forehead and having it in your hand as a way of saying, this is how um, often you ought to be thinking about it. This is what it ought to be like for you to have the Word of God on you. They take that very literally, meaning literally we should get a piece of Scripture and put it on our forehead and we should put it on our hands, right? And this is what they are doing, okay? So that's why they're wearing these phylacteries with Scripture on it and they broaden them in order to uh, make it more obvious and known. Now, whether you take it literally, whether you take it figuratively, what is the point of God giving this commandment. The point is that the Word of God needs to be in your heart and mind, and then you need to walk according to the law of God. You need to live a godly and a righteous life, which they're not doing. So what good is it to have Scripture written on your forehead or to have it written on the palm of your hands if you're not obeying it, if you're not walking according to the law of God? It's of no use at all. You're just doing it as an outward show. Also, the tassels. Right, the tassels. They lengthen the tassels of their garments. This goes to Numbers 15. Numbers 15. Verses 37 to 41. Numbers 15, 37. Said the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them, and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you have played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, here these tassels are commanded as a sign, a symbol. Something that is a reminder that you are to live a holy life. That you are to obey God. That you are to walk in His ways. They're not walking in God's ways. They're not living a holy life. But they have tassels. And they even have a lengthening of their tassels to show how holy they are, to show how serious they are about the things of God. Do you see what they're doing? How convoluted it is? Their focus is on these outward rites, these outward ceremonies, these kinds of rituals, and meticulously following them, even going overboard in exaggeration of these things as a sign of their godliness and of their devotion to God. But what the symbol represents is completely lacking in them. They are bereft of any true godliness. They don't practice holiness. They don't practice righteousness. Who are they trying to murder at this point? The very Son of God. They hate God, yet they say they love Him because they have tassels. So it is these outward shows. Outward shows in religion, focusing on these types of things while neglecting the inward reality, neglecting true godliness and true righteousness. Verse 6. They love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Here, they love public attention. 
and recognition. They like to walk there on the streets, there through the towns and villages, and for people to give them these honorable titles, to greet them in this way. Rabbi, tell us, you know, what does the Torah say about this? What does God say about this? Right? Is there a proper blessing for the czar? Right? These kinds of things they will say, and they want to know about this, and they love it that people come to them, and they're asking for their attention, asking them questions. They love the attention that it brings. These greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by men. To have the honorable seat at the banquet for the people to say, oh, rabbi, come here, sit on the front. Now, again, there's nothing wrong if it's sincere for the people to love their minister, to love their teacher, to want to honor them in the proper way, and for the minister to receive that honor if it's done in the proper way. But they're pursuing it. This is what they live for, right? They're doing all these things so that they can get the glory and honor of men. What is the ultimate reason the minister, the teacher, should be faithful to God? It is not to receive glory and praise from men, but to receive glory and praise from God. To hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, if along the way there are some men who are grateful and thankful, then that's good and fine, if it's genuine and sincere. But ultimately, the minister, the teacher, the rabbi, should be living not for the praise of men, but for the praise of God, to be commended by his master, not by his fellow servants. But they're living for the praise of men, because they love the glory and praise of men. Well, what is the solution, the answer to this, Jesus says. And this must be a very strong temptation because not only does He expose it in the scribes and Pharisees, He also takes time here to then instruct His own disciples about the danger of receiving glory and honor and living for these kinds of things. He says, But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your Father, He who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is the Christ. Now in this, of course, Jesus is not removing the use of any title or name used to make a distinction among men. Right? There is a proper place to call the governor, governor. There is a proper place to call your father, father in the home. And even in the church, there is the proper place to call the pastor or the elder, the elder. If someone new comes in and they ask, who's the pastor? And you say, well, we can't call anyone pastor. How's he going to know who the pastor is, right? You have to introduce it in one way or another. So there is a proper place to use this. However, what Jesus is addressing is this desire to receive these titles and to receive the honor that comes with them on this earth. Pursuing and desiring to be a teacher, to be a rabbi, to be a father, so that people will address me with this title and then I feel good about myself. Then it inflates my pride and I love the praise and the glory and honor of men. He doesn't want his disciples pursuing titles and honor in the church or assuming an authority over men as if the people depended ultimately upon them. Now, the people do depend upon them secondarily as teachers, but primarily, who are we dependent upon? 
we're dependent upon Christ. And who is our Father? We have only one Father who is God. We have only one teacher who is the Christ. We have only one leader who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? They are not the founders, the foundation of the Christian church. And they are not the establishers of the doctrines of the gospel. But rather, Christ is. God is. But when men are elevated too highly, then dependence is taken away from God and it's given to men. And we should not live in this way. The scribes and Pharisees wanted the people completely dependent on them. The people cannot go to the Bible themselves. They cannot interpret the Bible themselves. They must depend upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why they wanted these titles to be used so that it enslaved the people to their whims. But we shouldn't be like that. Again, not that there isn't a proper place to have leaders and teachers and even spiritual fathers right in the church. Yes, we recognize that in the proper way, but we shouldn't be pursuing these things and lording it over one another. But rather, we should do it in the way that is commended to us by God. An example, 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, 15. First Corinthians 4.15 says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Here the Apostle Paul is considering himself their father. Now does he mean that in the ultimate sense? No. Does he mean that he regenerated them? Does he mean that he gave them life on his own? No. He means it in the sense that the person used by God to grant to them salvation, uh, to teach them the, the gospel for their salvation, was the Apostle Paul. But he was only a vessel. Ultimately, it came from God. That's what Christ means in Matthew 23. You have only one Father. Here, he means it in a different sense. And so it's legitimate for him to say that I am your Father, in a sense, in the gospel. right? In terms of my role and my ministry among you. Okay, verse 11. Verses 11 and 12. What should be our attitude? But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Right? Instead of seeking and desiring glory and honor for ourselves, instead of using the church and the people as a way of promoting myself, getting a title, getting honor, getting glory and praise for myself... We should not approach them that way, but rather as a servant. They should be servants in the church of Christ and consider the people as brothers and co-heirs with Christ. In terms of their position, yes, they have a position that the common people do not have. But in terms of salvation and redemption, they're all brothers. And then in terms of how they are to exercise the authority and position given to them by God, They are to be servants. Servants there in the church. That's the exact opposite of what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were not servants. They were lording it over the people and they wanted the people to serve them. But Christ tells His disciples, no, you need to be humble and you need to be the servant of all. And the greatest among you will be the greatest servant. Right? This is the way that you should be. 
And if you exalt yourself, then you're going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, then you will be exalted. If you exalt yourself now, you're going to be humbled on the day of judgment. And if you humble yourself now and take the role of a servant, then God will exalt you on the day of judgment as a preeminent servant of Christ. And you will receive your reward there in the life to come. Do we want our praise now? Or do we want our praise in the life to come? Do we want the praise of men? Or do we want the praise of God? Because that is what is at stake here. Right? We want God commending us, saying, well done, good and faithful servant, right, before His Father and before the holy angels. That's what we want Christ saying. Well done, good and faithful servant, to confess our name to His Father in heaven and say, this one was a good servant of mine. He was a humble servant. He loved the church. He ministered in the church. He wasn't doing it for His own glory and honor, but He was doing it for yours and for the sake of my people. That's the way that we should be. And who is the preeminent example of a servant? Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 20, right? Matthew 20, which is a reminder that Jesus, Jesus Christ in His person and in His life is the preeminent example of the Christian life. If we want to know how to live a life pleasing to God, who do we need to look to? We need to look to Christ. Christ is our teacher. He is our guide. We ought to live the way that He lived. And Christ does not expect things of us that He Himself has not already accomplished and that He has already done. Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Here, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather He came to serve. And His servanthood is manifested in that He gave His life a ransom for many. That's how much of a servant Christ was. He was willing to lay down His life for the sheep. So we also ought to be willing to lay down our lives for one another in this way. Right? We ought to be servants of all.